Hello and welcome to Genetically Speaking. In our first season, we delved into the careers of our members within the American Society of Human Genetics. We had great conversations with genetic counselors, researchers, educators, clinicians, and more. We were able to explore their unique journeys and the impact they've made in the world of human genetics and genomics. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome and we're glad to have you here. For our repeat listeners, welcome back. I hope you hear something new that stays with you. Thanks for joining us in revisiting Season 1 of Genetically Speaking. Uh, welcome to the ASHG Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gunter, and today we're joined by Dr. Andrew Landstrom. Thank you so much for joining us today. So can you tell us a little bit about your current work and research and what you're doing? Sure. Well, Chris, thanks for having me. Um, so I am a uh, assistant professor at Duke University, and every day I get to do two things, which I really love. Uh, the first is to take care of patients. And so I'm a pediatric cardiologist and I specialize in genetics. And it's part of the reason why I'm here today at ASHG. Um, and in that role, I take care of families and, and children who have sudden cardiac death predisposing diseases. Uh, and these can come in many different varieties, whether it's electrical, whether it's heart muscle, um, but oftentimes the common thread through all of these is that they can be genetic. And so if the family has had, unfortunately, a a sudden death, the question is, well, are my other kids at risk? And we use genetics to try to figure that out. Right. Um, the second thing I get to do every day is research. And so you can imagine that in my clinical practice, these, these kids are on the cutting edge of sort of where clinical medicine is. And oftentimes, you know, they, they've seen many doctors and everybody says, we have no idea why your family has this disease. And so a lot of things that we're very excited to do is partner with these families and said, can we work with you to move beyond the, the boundaries of clinical medicine into the research world? We can actually try to figure this out. And so on that research side, I'm very fortunate to work with some incredible people. And we try to ask questions that we can't normally ask in the clinic. So can we deploy things like whole genome sequencing to identify novel loci, novel genetic loci that are responsible for disease? And then can we leverage tools like induced pluripotent stem cells derived from these families to model their disease, to be able to try to, you know, not only identify the locus, but how that locus impacts their hearts and cause disease. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. And so much work in this area that is really interesting. So did you, uh, how did you, did you do graduate training as well as getting your MD? I did. So I, I kind of had a longer pathway. Yeah. Uh, so I went through the MD PhD program up at Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't necessarily think about doing sort of cardiovascular genetics to start. I, I've always loved genetics, even as a kid. The idea of DNA kind of explaining life um, was just really just incredible to me. And the application of that in medicine has always just fascinated me. Um, and then I went to the MD-PhD program up at Mayo, uh, hoping to explore that. And I knew that. Do you have any tips for people on we're deciding whether an MD, PhD, right. PhD, how did you make that decision? Well, I, 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 I made that decision because I couldn't pick. Yeah. So okay. I love the science and I love its impact on, on people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the, the moral of the story for, for me is, you know, I, I made one decision, but that decision is obviously very different for everybody else. And if people follow their passion and they love what they do, that's the, that's the goal. Because that seems, you know, then you're never going to work every day. You're simply living out your passion. Right. Despite many years of sleepless nights and what have you. No, that's fine. And that's, and that's part of, I think, part of good training. 
part of your training. And so just like, you know, uh, when you're training in the sciences, you should train robustly. You should do lots of experiments. You should fail a lot in the lab. A part of clinical training is to be there at two o'clock in the morning when those sick kids come into the ER because that's, you know, they need your help now. And you can take a little bit uh, from that family educationally to help treat the next family. So I think it's just part of robust training. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you, I think um, something that we're exploring a little bit in the podcast is um, working with families and talking to them. How did you learn how that can be so difficult, I imagine? Did you learn that through your MD training? Did you pursue other training to be able to talk to families? Or? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, medical school does give us an opportunity to sort of learn the basics behind how to approach a family, how to have a difficult conversation with a family. But especially in kind of my line of work, there really is no way you can simulate or teach, you know, how to have these conversations with families. And so what I do is I, I, I try to rely on both sides of my training, both the medical side and the scientific side, to be able to provide an objective view of their child's disease and of the family's disease. And, and that's just so that the family can kind of get their head around it. I mean, they've, they've, they've come in and they've already lost a baby or they've been told about a very serious diagnosis. And so they already have uh, the, the gravity of a diagnosis is already set in. And what they need from me is someone to sort of say, well, here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's the plan moving forward. Right. And, and, and then as well, it sounds like offer the potential for participating in research. Here's what we could know. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And we try to offer it as something that, uh, you know, we, we couldn't do the research side without these families. Absolutely. And we try to make it very apparent that we're, this is a partnership. You know, we used to call in research subjects. They are not research subjects, they're research partners. Yep. And this is a partnership really to, to not only learn from their family, but to help other children in other families with similar diseases. Absolutely. So important. So, and then when you're doing that research, one of the things that you mentioned relates to a paper that I saw that you had recently looking at the signal to noise analysis of genetic variation. So this is yeah. a huge problem that all of us are grappling with. So tell me a little bit about, I know there's been a lot of work on that in the cardiomyopathy and, and cardiogenesis space. So yeah. tell me a little bit about what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for, for first of all, kind of bringing up this topic and letting me expand on it a little bit. I mean, this is something that I struggle with yeah. from the research side and the clinical side. Um, and something that is only getting to be more of a, an issue with the expanse of genetic testing into the direct-to-consumer genetic testing arena, into the whole genome sequencing arena for essentially no indication, um, which is which is happening. Um, and so with that, we're starting to identify all these variants that track into genes that have been associated with some really serious cardiac diagnoses. Some of them can cause sudden death in young children. And so the big question is, well, what's the diagnostic weight of these variants? And to try to get at some of those questions, we've, we've taken an approach that, well, if we look at individuals who are sick and we know they have disease and we look at where those genetic mutations fall, then what the chances, is, chances are of having a genetic mutation in a particular locus versus there's background variation in the population. It's part of what makes us human. We're all a little bit different genetically. And we compare that pathologic variation rate to the healthy population variation rate, we kind of arrive at a signal to noise, where the signal is the frequency of bad variants divided by the noise, the frequency of healthy variants in the population that are tolerated or at least don't right. penetrate or to disease. Right. Exactly. And, and this has been used for many, many years at a single gene level. But if we 
maybe just taking it one step further and saying we might be able to apply this at an amino acid level to provide some clarity as to whether the variant you found in the gene, yes, that may cause disease, whether it falls in the region of actually might be more related to a pathologic state versus a healthy state. So it's something that we're very actively researching, us and others, to see if we can clarify the diagnostic weight of some of these variants, particularly incidentally identified variants. Yeah. And that's hard because you mentioned earlier talking to families as well. It's hard to also, part of your job is to convey that uncertainty as well. And then go back and I assume review results with them as they change over time too, right? Exactly right. It all goes back to the family. And I think it just highlights that whatever sort of tool you use to figure out your genetic analysis, it always goes back to the conversation you had with the family before you ever did the genetic testing. Just like you said, we highlight what the uncertainty is of the test. We highlight that genetic testing is almost never a binary yes or no. Right. It's always a probability. And so we may be very, very certain of that probability, but there's always a little bit of uncertainty in everything. And so we try to outline that for the family. So that when something like this comes back, no matter what tool we use, whether it's a amino acid level signal to those tool or something different, machine learning, whatever. Yeah, well, it was tightness. Right? That's right. That's right. You always do it under this sort of the, 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 the conversation you had previously with the family that all of all this does is it clarifies some of the uncertainty. But at the end of the day, um, this is something that we always do in the context of the clinical evaluation, do in the con- interpret in the context of that family um, and have to watch going forward. So a one-time genetic test and then you're never seen again is not the way to approach things because uncertainty changes over time. It's part of a follow-up, just like a, a test you know, is done once and then you follow up with those results. We follow up with the gen- genetic test results, even though DNA doesn't change, our interpretation of those results do change over time. You go back to families and talk to them. So it's given that you're in the clinic, is there anything that you would like, any tool for, for genetics that you would love to have? Like this would make your job 20 times easier. Yeah. Well, well, what would make my job a lot easier is if we could shrink the uncertainty as to as close to zero as you can. So if I could give a computer, for example, a variant that has never been seen before in man, and ask that computer to say, okay, what is the probability that this is going to become a highly penetrant disease of the heart? And that computer says 98%. Accurately. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. Ideally. And then- and just, You probably get that number now, but- <laughs> Right. No, exactly. And then anyway, someone's gone through and validated that testing in families, in functional studies in the lab, some way of proving that. But if that computer gave us an accurate reporting, that'd be great. Yeah. It would change. It would change the face of what I do. Yeah, to be able to have that and to give more certainty to families and to yourself, right? Exactly. In terms of changing your practice. So what do you do when uh, families walk in with, you mentioned, uh, direct-to-consumer testing results? Yeah. What do you do? Are you equipped to handle those? Sounds like you are. But what what, do you, what tools, if we have clinicians listening to this, yeah. how would you suggest that they become equipped to handle those? Well, I, I would say I'm very much not equipped to handle direct-to-consumer genetic testing. I don't think anybody really feels comfortable with it, at least in the space that I clinically occupy. Uh, but it's becoming more of an issue. Absolutely. The way I think I try to approach it is to see where the family's coming from. This is a family uh, who, by the simple fact they're walking in with this test, mm. is motivated to get to the bottom of their child's disease. And so that is always a plus. Yeah. They care. They want to get to the bottom of this. And that's where we start. And we try to say, well, look, these tests are best interpreted in the setting of a pretest probability. And so we do our clinical evaluation to say what that pretest probability is. Good old-fashioned history, physical yeah. exam, family history, 
maybe we throw in some cardiac evaluation tests. And then we say, okay, well, let's interpret that test now in the setting of that pre-test probability. And then we arrive at a post-test probability. So you're a Bayesian. I love. Okay. I love Bayesian theory. Yes. Rounding ourselves. Yes. The nerd. Yes. Oh, good. So speaking of being a nerd, sometimes you're not in the lab or in the clinic. Yeah. So what do you do to recharge and distract yourself outside? No, thank you for asking that question. It's almost never asked, actually. So I appreciate that. So I'm very fortunate uh, to have a wife who has stuck with me through the better part of a decade and a half of postgraduate training. Uh, we have two boys uh, who are quickly approaching teenage years. Boy, I'm with you. And and yeah, that maybe uh, you know that, that that has its own challenges. But as a, as a pediatrician, I try to be sympathetic to some of the some of the teenager issues. True. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it is a wonderful way to recharge when you have a family who wants to go see a basketball game mm-hmm. or a family that wants to go out and yeah do a little traveling. I think those things keep all of us grounded potentially in in kind of the work that we do. So it's it's a it's a wonderful thing for me. Yeah, basketball. Any favorite team? Well, so I, I say this uh, knowing full well that I am at Duke, uh, but I met my wife at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, another institution, oh. uh, with a slightly better basketball program, eight miles down the road. Uh, and so while I love Duke, I love Duke Children's Hospital, basketball season is basketball season. Yeah, you've got to have, it's okay, right? You can have your favorites. Exactly. That's right. That's right. On the basketball court, I have a favorite team. Uh, like I said, Duke's a phenomenal place to work. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. So tell me about um, things that you're really, it, it's, we've talked about a lot of things that you're excited about in genetics and things that you'd like to have, but this is the part where I encourage people to be speculative and what do you see happening in the next five years, 10 years, whatever, what what do you see coming down the pipe? You know, I think we are really, I'm sure people have said this before, but I really believe it. I think we are at a watershed moment uh, in genomic medicine. I think the field is advancing so rapidly and the tools that we have um, really make things that were unimaginable. They're going to be the standard of care. And so what I envision happening in the next 10, 20 years is that whole genome sequencing and its diagnostic utility in certain populations, one that may very well be the sick infant, um, is going to really take root. One, because of the diagnostic yield the savings to the healthcare system by being able to identify sick kids by a genetic test early. Um, all of that's going to drive a very rapid acceptance of, in my opinion, whole genome sequencing in the sick neonate. With that comes an incredible ability to identify disease early, to potentially save the healthcare system money. But also, like, like we've already talked about, the, the other side to that sword is signal to noise. If we start sequencing all these babies with no clinical indication for cardiac disease, we are going to find incidental illness found in cardiac genes. So how do we, you know, how do we interpret these genetic tests wisely so that we can make these diagnoses without giving them diagnoses they don't need to have? Absolutely. Right. And spending so much time. I mean, do you, can you foresee the entire genome sequence being in Epic or Cerner or whatever system is used? Yes. Yeah. Oh, 100%. So I, 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 I actually think the whole genome is going to be done at birth, like your newborn screen is done at birth. Okay. And that child will have their whole genome before they leave the hospital wow. with all the implications that that carries. Data privacy. Exactly. Yeah. And we have, to, we have to meet that challenge because if those families who are doing direct-to-consumer testing has taught us anything, 
is that even if we as clinicians are hesitant about this, the families are not. So it's happening now. We can either help, we can be part of the conversation and meet those challenges, or we can sort of put our heads in the sand and say they don't exist and do a disservice to the families that we're sworn to, sworn to treat and sworn to help. Now you want to help also. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So along those lines, it, let's say that that is happening, that that uh, genome will be sequenced at birth and that it'll be available, et cetera. We got people who are just entering genetics training now. What kind of skills should they acquire or pursue to be equipped for that? First off, it's a phenomenal time to be a trainee in genomic sciences. I, I think the the general approach to their training should should be one of multidisciplinary uh, expertise. And so, yeah, to be to truly be facile in this space, I think one has to not just be a bioinformatician or a, or a molecular biologist. Um, I think it takes a little bit of training in all of those things. And absolutely somebody can have a focus, but the ability to cut across different disciplines makes one's science a lot better, a little more applicable uh, to the challenges that we face. And so I'd really encourage trainees, we get the opportunity to seek out mentorship from a diversity of perspectives. Uh, and, and they can be perspectives either directly or maybe even indirectly related genetics. Because if, if they start asking questions about how to do good science um, I, from a variety of different viewpoints, that is incredible training, incredible perspective to carry with you. And, and you just don't know when you use that. I mean, it's, I don't know about you, but stuff that my mentors say comes back to me all the time. That's right. So I oh, absolutely. Mentor that used to tell me all the time that science is about relationships and having a scientific career is actually all about building relationships. And yeah, that comes back to me all the time. That's a great way of putting it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Landstrom. I'm Dr. Chris Gunter, and this has been the ASHG Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Genetically Speaking. Join us again next week for another episode. <laughs>